Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's, a, it's a, an astute question. Um, gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right <laughs> to, agree, to agree to this. Hi, my name's Jeff Gordonier, and my dilemma is that my two toddler twins, who are four years old, are both sick and home from school. And I have work to do, and my wife is in the city. So, seeing as I just did an episode on not letting technology raise your kids, I guess I can't just suggest handing them an iPad and and, uh, logging them into YouTube. So, do you have family nearby that could watch them for a bit while you work? Um... I don't know. Have you heard of children's Benadryl? <laughs> I mean, for their symptoms, obviously, not the uh, not the primary side effect of sedation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the only answer is to bring out the big guns. Disney, you need a Moana and Frozen double feature. And if you really have a, a seriously big work day, you might have to queue up Frozen 2 as well. That's parenting, right? I nailed it. That's what she said. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hope this is a short holiday week for you. Hope you've got some rest and family and good food and maybe some football and hoops watching on the couch in the near future. Uh, Since this is Thanksgiving week and it's all about food, who better to have on than a food expert and writer? Jeff Gordonaire is a contributing editor at Esquire, one of the lucky few who creates and writes the best new restaurants list for the magazine every year, which means tons of flying around and trying new spots. His work is frequently published in various U.S. magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times. He's also the author of two books, X Saves the World and Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. Uh, Jeff and I actually met through Friend of the Pod, Chef Edward Lee, and after reading his book, Hungry, I knew I had to have him on to talk about his very unique, extraordinary, non-traditional life, especially that stretch uh, of flying around. So we talk about how he realized he needed a lifestyle and career change uh, when death felt looming as he continued to eat his way around the world. Uh, We talk about the process for making the best new restaurants list and a chef that retaliated when he was left off of it. Uh, Jeff following a gal to Prague, deciding to, quote unquote, join the circus and travel the world with the best chef on earth, Noma's Rene Redzepi. And we do a little Thanksgiving Spanish Inquisition, best sides, worst sides, biggest mistakes, all that good stuff. So enjoy. And when you're done listening, take a minute, go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give it a nice review. They really do help. I really appreciate it. Uh, like this one from Modem03. Excellent podcast. I've been listening for a couple years now. Sarah's one of the most prepared and intelligent interviewers of our time. Her podcasts are entertaining and they're educational. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. I love seeing positive reactions to the pod because I love doing it and I love sharing interesting people with all of you, uh, people like Jeff. So enjoy this. That's what she said. <laughs> So I met Jeff by chance with friend of the pod and all around great dude, Chef Edward Lee, when we were in Chicago and Ed corralled us to a great restaurant in Chicago called Parachute to shoot something for somewhere that we don't really know. I don't think you know either, Jeff. We just no idea. If Chef Ed Lee calls, we arrive, especially if it's to go eat at Parachute. Uh, And we started chatting. You sent me your book, which I loved. And I decided let's have him on to talk about the book, to talk about helping lead America to the best restaurants every single year through Esquire. And then, of course, it is Thanksgiving. So we might do a Thanksgiving speed round uh, with a food expert to see a uh, what what your take is as an expert on all things food. But I want to start with uh, you growing up. Um, I believe in California, based on yeah. our conversation. Yeah, you only I think mentioned I mentioned several hundred times. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> I trained right. on that. It's part of my identity since college, um, you know. I'm the Californian. I'm from <laughs> Chicago, so we get it around here. It's very much a part of our identity, too. Uh, yeah. So what were you into as a kid growing up in California? Uh, as a kid in California, I was into the church. I was very religious. I, I, I grew up in a 
uh, a church going family and I went to about four or five Bible studies a week. Wow. Um, yeah. And I didn't never even had a beer in high school. I was a very a goody, goody, a good boy. Um, but my, my world was sort of broken open, uh, by four things, uh, rock and roll, specifically punk rock, uh, poetry, which I still write about for the New York times and other platforms, um, film, particularly sort of indie film uh, revolution of the 80s and 90s later on, um, and food. I grew up in Los Angeles, which is, you know, obviously one of the world's great food cities and two of the great uh, game-changing food writers of, of, of uh, you know, the past few decades, Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichel were both writing in Los Angeles at that time. And, uh, you know, blew my adolescent mind. <laughs> I, I grew up basically in Pasadena um, and, and a very sort of white bread part of L.A. And, um, you know, reading this is pre-Google, of course, pre-Internet and like reading Ruth, who's become a friend. I'm proud to say I mean, she's a wonderful person. And, and Jonathan, who whom unfortunately has passed away. But they, you know, they would write about I, I don't know if you know this, but right up the hill is some of the best Armenian food, you know, in the city and said it's just right over the border there in monterey park some of the most incredible chinese banquet halls in america down the street highland park incredible taco trucks you know go a few more miles and you're in thai town you can get boat noodles you know 15 16 years old i didn't know i didn't know that yeah. right how else would i know and um and uh going out with my friends, seeing punk rock shows. I saw The mm -hmm. Clash when I was 14. Amazing. And uh, yeah, that was that, that was a, a mind-altering. But then also, you know, going to Jeet Lada for Thai food before or after that show with a big group of people and tasting flavors I'd never had. Being introduced to cultures I knew very little about um, and um, just kind of embracing, you know, the deliciousness of humanity in a way like all you know la is so diverse and you know there's yeah. filipino food korean food persian food mexican food from all the different regions you know you the yucatan peninsula oaxaca baja area ensenada mexico city and it's just you know it's a wonderland so weirdly enough sarah that's my career my career has been writing about poetry all the things yeah you love yeah, movies music well done you food. well done yeah you. well it sounded funny. a little cameron crow at the beginning right a religious <laughs> household where rock and roll opens your eyes um was bit. your what did your parents do for work and what were they conservative and restrictive and you broke out of that or were they open to you exploring going to the clash and finding restaurants and stuff um i think because essentially i got good grades and i was a nice kid and I was headed to a good college that they didn't really mess with me. You know, like I did my homework. So whatever I was doing at night, whatever records I was listening to, it wasn't a big deal. They're not um, restrictive conservatives per se. My father is a Republican and is, has been his whole life and that's not going to change. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, you know, they're, they're more like uh, chamber of commerce, Ronald okay. Reagan type Republicans, <laughs> okay. right? They, they don't like paying taxes so much, you know. <laughs> right, right, um, so right. uh, um, I don't know that they even knew what I was going to, though, to be honest. Right. I mean, like that I was going to see the Dead Kennedys and X and the class. So you weren't and... rebelling so much as just exploring things. That's well put. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, a big change for me, I went to um, a bookstore in Pasadena called Romans. And I picked up at random a book by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was one of the founding fathers of the Beat generation beat movement in fact lived to be 101 he only recently passed away yeah and I, I picked up a book of his called endless life and i opened it and saw words bouncing all, all around the page mm -hmm. you know punctuation was all messed up and he was just breaking the rules and it was very accessible poetry uh for for a 14 year old kid 15 year old whatever it was and um that turned me on to the beats Totally cliche, by the way. I realize yeah, that yeah. that like to listen. I mean, kid, I, I'm waiting know. for Bukowski to come because that's inevitably yeah, I, what I, I, every man says change their mind about poetry and help them find themselves. <laughs> I didn't really go in the Bukowski direction, okay, although I will right. argue. I will argue that the his novel Post Office is one of the perfect American novels, just as an encapsulation of the fictional form. Um, and I've gotten in some arguments about that but um I'm, i actually <laughs> went more toward the new york school of poets we're getting really arcane here but i loved frank o'hara 
mm-hmm. uh, James Schuyler, that that whole crowd who were sort of uh, the East Coast version of the Beats. Um, so people will not be surprised to learn that this precocious and curious pre- kid ends up at Princeton. Pretentious <laughs> works as well. Pretentious <laughs> ends up at Princeton. Yeah. Um, and so you're studying uh, English and writing and pursuing all of this this interest, um, and you you start working in some pretty high level stuff. You you don't immediately follow the passions. You end up doing city government and politics reporting uh, for the News and Observer in North Carolina. Uh, then you move to Prague. Uh, yeah. What kind of writing did you do in Prague? And how old were you when you were there? I was probably 23 or so. It was right after the Velvet Revolution. I basically was obsessed with the movie Reds by, you know, the Warren Beatty film with Diane Keaton. And I went to Prague with a girlfriend at the time and just kind of to have a romantic revolutionary moment. (laughs) (laughs) As I said, pretentious. I own it. Yeah, yeah. Um, The kind of writing I did was the kind of writing that writers do when they're just sitting around looking at a window, which is to say no writing. I didn't really paid. Uh, you sat was, at coffee shops and you stroked your chin as if you were creating and thinking about things that would change the world. Yeah, you know, you you know, you're you're much younger than I, but this was the era of the slackers, and I fully own that. I slacked. <laughs> I love slacking, and I still do. I'm basically a flunder of the old school. So I went to Prague, beautiful old city, alive with possibility after the Velvet Revolution, and I played a lot of chess. I drank a lot of beer. I met a lot of cool young people and hung out with them. I think I wrote one article the whole time it was. Was in. your lady friend supporting you, or were you taking the the News and Observer wages and running them into the ground? Uh, I I uh, I mean that that relationship didn't didn't work out, and I ended up <laughs> sort of adrift on the uh, you know on the Ural Pass, a dri- adrift in winds, and yeah, and the then train, Budapest. The train will I, take you. Yeah. I eventually <laughs> ran out of money. I actually think I had won some small writing prize or something that subsidized this and i ran out of money and you know my parents were like what the hell are you doing and i and i I went home i ended up writing about rock and roll for the newspaper in santa barbara and then i just you know again pre-internet i mean i had this a lot of writers of my uh, vintage had this realization like nobody's gonna see my stuff like i'm doing good stuff no one's gonna see it so i just like i was that guy who wrote the goals down i actually think sarah I owe a debt of gratitude to to Tony Robbins. Oh, no. Yeah. You may not have seen that coming after the (laughs) Frank O'Hara and and, and the clash. But I I was watching a Tony Robbins show or something where he said, write it down, make it happen, write it down, make it happen. And I was like, oh, man, I'm a slacker. I hate this stuff, but he's right. Right. I, I think he's right. And so I wrote down, I will go to New York City. I will write for national magazines and I will be published in Esquire or the New Yorker. Amazing. I've Amazing. never been published in the New Yorker, although I've been mentioned. I've been quoted. Still time. Which is kind of cool. But Still I have time. I wound up writing for Esquire. So it's kind of yeah, cool. You know, that's it, so it, cool. I, I just kind of went all in. I'd stayed up all night trying to send my clips to people. I would go to New York on long weekends, like a holiday weekend, crash on somebody's couch. I just try to meet editors. I remember I tried to meet Tina Brown, you know, who's like super yeah. famous at the time. Yeah. Either was at the New Yorker or Vanity Fair. And I was like, I'm going to meet her. And, um, you know, I was a rock critic from the Santa Barbara News Press. Like, <laughs> <laughs> suffice it, it to say, the, the meeting did not transpire. It's always it's always fun <laughs> to hear about the pursuit of meeting those uh, business people or folks that you want to work for pre where you could just tweet or email them. Uh, yeah. One of my previous guests really wanted to work for Virgin and literally oh. got onto a cruise ship with Richard Branson and yeah. was like, I'm just going to make it happen. Yeah. Um, what do we do before before uh, DMs? We stalked yeah, people. Stalking. Yeah. <laughs> which is why another reason men have been significantly more successful than women in the past. <laughs> uh, women are far less uh, adroit at uh, at stalking uh, for good reason and, and safety and otherwise. Yeah, I'm um, probably too good. So before we get to Esquire quickly, because you kept mentioning pre-internet, um, you, you wrote and you were an editor for Entertainment Weekly, which was like, the jam back in yeah. the day. I mean, I think my my sister and I were avid readers. We we subscribed and got it every every week and writing about music and movies there and then ending up at, at details. You really wanted to sort of have your finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist, it feels like. Did you yeah. 
did you feel and um, were those jobs good ones for you or did you want to get more esoteric and outside of the main pop culture realm or, you know, what ended up moving you outside of music and movies and into food? I'll tell you what you mentioned almost famous and almost famous is essentially about the mystique of Rolling Stone in the 70s. It is my contention and I, I, I don't get much dispute against this it's it that there are certain magazines that you know until magazines started <laughs> fading but uh, but that would define certain decades right esquire right. in the 60s rolling stone in the 70s spy magazine and vanity fair under I was Tina say Brown. vanity the, fair for sure yeah in the 80s in the 90s it was entertainment weekly mm -hmm. and i just happened to land there when i was at the santa barbara news press i was just haphazardly sending out my resume trying to get interviews and i out i wound up getting the call. I got a call before Christmas, late 1993. Jeff, this is Jim Seymour. I'm the editor of Entertainment Weekly. Do you want to move to New York and work for us? And I was like, oh man, this guy must be drunk. You know? <laughs> Which I turned out to find out later, could, it might've been possible been, actually, but, but yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. a good friend. He, he likes to party. It's one but, of the keys but, to I being mean, a writer. <laughs> he, he wound up in like, I mean, brilliant guy, brilliant talent scout in that very week. He hired AJ Jacobs, who wound up becoming a famous author. He hired Albert Kim, who wound up being a major producer in Hollywood and little old me. And, uh, you yeah, know, I when I worked one. there, um, you know, the author of Gone Girl was one of our comrades um mark harris i'm looking at his incredible book on mike nichols he was my editor in the film section um david brown who's done many many music books i mean i could go on and on it's it was like a talent lagoon it was like infested with brilliant talent i mean mark bernard and chris nashawati it, it was and it was so it was like being at rolling stone in the 70s but in right. the sort of slacker 90s and we a lot of us were kind of misfits who couldn't get jobs other places <laughs> but we were all very young you know early 20s in many cases and um obsessed with pop culture and you know like i mentioned music and film were my were sort of part of the engine that that yeah. Got me fired up, changed who I was, sort of. And and uh, th th those were my beats. I wrote about, I you, wrote about music you... and I wrote about uh, film, indie film. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You wrote a book and then you pivoted after the book and some time at details to the food section of the New York Times. And that sort of set you on this path for what a lot of people know your your work uh, about, which is writing for food for the New York Times, for Esquire, the book that you yeah. wrote with uh, yeah. what many believe is the greatest chef in the world. Um, so let's talk about that stretch, because I was reading a. Uh, I believe it's actually your farewell column to covering the food beat at Esquire as a regular with a column and, and traveling and eating. And uh, the line in it is this way leads to death. I'm sorry <laughs> if that messes with your fantasies about a future career in food writing throughout the past decade, about half of it at the food section of the New York Times, half of it here at Esquire. I become accustomed to hearing people tell me you have the best job in the world. The truth is that eating your way around the country takes a serious toll on your body, your family life and your emotional equilibrium for a man in his mid 50s. It's roughly as sustainable as Russian roulette. So looking back on that, say, 10, 11 years or so, um, how much of it did feel like sometimes a job or a tax on your body as opposed to what we all dream and imagine uh, it is to cover the food beat? I mean, I'm going to use a word here. It's, it's actually terrifying to write about food professionally. My predecessor at Esquire, Joshua Ozersky, died. He basically died on the job in Chicago during the James Beard Awards. That'll um, happen he, in Chicago. He was younger than I. And Jonathan Gold, whom I previously mentioned, passed away from, I think, pan pancreatic cancer, you know, in his 50s. Obviously, Anthony Bourdain um, 
A.A. Gill, one of my favorite food writers in England. I mean, these were all like heroes of mine and they were all passing away. And uh, it's kind of freaked me out. I have four children. Um, I, um, I want to stay, stay around. And, um, you know, Sarah, I had this one week. Um, there's two things that kind of drove it home. If you watch the Montreal episode of Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, <laughs> I'm actually in that. And Phil Rosenthal and I had this feast that is, it was sickening. It was actually grotesque. I, I mean, it went on and on. It was like a form of torture. Like, like, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm picturing the scene in Seven. For <laughs> that's, it, that's, it was like, yeah, was it was your like, work. I should have <laughs> referred to that, Sarah. Like, yeah. it was heaps of organ meats and and then oh. covered in maple syrup, and they put all this drizzled butter. I mean, it was actually twisted, weirdly delicious. But like, the body could only take about one. 20th of this meal yeah. before you're like I want to die and maybe I, <laughs> I just will and then um, I had a week for Esquire I used to do the best new restaurants list every year by myself Ooh. now I want you to consider what that is this is a big country there's a lot of great cities there's a lot of smaller cities and small towns around the country right now that have incredible food scenes and absolutely game-changing restaurants it was my mission to be good at this job and to try to get to the mall. But that means covering the whole country by yourself, which oh. first of all, wrecks your travel budget. But then also, you know, one, one week, literally one seven day stretch. I went to Asheville, North Carolina. Then I drove to Birmingham, Alabama. Then I drove the next day to Atlanta, Georgia. The next day I flew to Miami, Florida. The next day I flew to Austin, Texas. <laughs> the next day I flew to Los Angeles and weirdly appeared on Top Chef. And the next day I flew back to New York. Oh. And in each city I ate, you know, at least three or four, five meals. I would oh. eat in Miami. I realized, I think it was like nine meals in a few hours. And then I yeah, got- Yeah, and how do you even judge them? Because by whatever number of meals, your body's just like, how about some lettuce? And then you're starting yeah. to veer towards wanting something on the menu that's not what they're known for or not their specialty because <laughs> your body's just like, no, I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, you, you really, you're you're in pain. And the worst thing is that when it is really good, then you can't stop. You can actually tell when something's extraordinary. But I mean, I'm, I'm buddies with Rich Roll, who's a, you know, prominent athlete, uh, triathlete, Ultraman guy and podcaster. And, you know, he's vegan, he's plant-based and um, eats plant-based. He isn't plant-based himself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I would say to Rich, like, I'm so jealous, dude. <laughs> I just, I just want an avocado want salad. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I am so sick of this. And he was like, you can stop anytime, man. And, you know, Dan <laughs> Butner is a friend who wrote the blue zones books, which are all about, you know, the blue zones they are the places around yeah. the world where people live to like Mediterranean 100. usually. Yeah. Yeah. Greece but also, Oka like yeah. Ikaria, Japan. On, mm -hmm. Okinawa and Japan, uh, the Nicoya Peninsula and Costa Rica. I mean, I was doing the opposite of the blue zones. I was doing the red zones, you know, and, and like, how quick can I die? And I, so I got, you know, I actually stopped. It was during the pandemic. I basically stopped drinking. I still drink only rarely. Um, and at the moment, not at all. Um, and it's not an AA thing, I would say, if it was. It's really just like a health thing. It affects my yeah. sleep, my weight, my skin. Um, puts me in a bad mood, as my wife would tell you. And, uh, and, uh, so, you know, as like a lot of us early in the pandemic, I was like, I got to make some changes. I just stopped right. drinking altogether. And I basically, um, we kind of finished up a Best New Restaurants in 2020 that I collaborated with my editor, Kevin Sintemong. And then I quit. I just, yeah, I went to but work. But now you dabble. Days. You didn't quit entirely. When I want to go back yeah. because, because, you know, you're, we're talking 2020, 2021 now, but one of the stretches that isn't quite the same as the travel schedule that you just shared, but there are moments that certainly feel like that is yeah. your, your work for the book, hungry eating yeah. and road tripping and risking it all with the greatest chef in the world. You sent me this book after we met and a lot of people do that. Hey, read my book, <laughs> oh, read my I'm book. Sorry. I love my book, but I looked at it and I was like, I'll just start it and see. And I absolutely loved it, except for oh, the fact that, first of all, when I was finishing it, it made me go eat Mexican food when I otherwise would have chosen a more wise and healthy thing because I was listening to the descriptions of the moles and everything else. And then also, um, 
I feel like sometimes reading about incredible meals at places that no longer exist or cannot be visited kind of mm. feels like reading about going to a concert for a band that you can never see. Like, I yeah. always regret that I never got to see Pink Floyd when they were Pink Floyd. Yeah. I always regret I never got to see Guns N' Roses, like peak Guns N' Roses, not like wheezing and heaving Axel Guns N' Roses. There are certain musicians from certain times that I never got. And I'm reading about Noma in its original in incantation that does not exist anymore. I'm reading about the Tulum Noma pop-up mm. that I never went to. And I was getting angry because of the descriptions and the work <laughs> that went into these meals and these recipes and the time that was spent. I want you to explain how you ended up divorced, mm. depressed, and with enough time and belief in this man, this chef, that you were like, yeah, sure, I'll just fly around the world with you. And and at what point was it clear that he wanted you to write a book or that he was willing to have you write about this entire experience? Oh, yeah. Well, it was my idea to write the book. I mean, as probably is evident to your listeners by now, I have some issues with impulse control. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm not entirely disciplined. I, I, I think Ryan Holiday would take me to task with this <laughs> discipline book. I'm right. trying, dude. I'm trying. Um I, I'm, the, you know, so um, background, this guy, Rene Redzep, he has a restaurant in Noma that was five times named the best restaurant in the world. So many times that it was passed into the Hall of Fame of the organization and can, can no longer be named the best restaurant. In the world. Man, that's like being retired on TRL. Yeah, Big they deal. were like, you're you're like Cal Rip, you're, you're out now. You just stopped. yeah, you're the Backstreet so, Boys. Yeah, you're point. too good. Yeah. <laughs> You, you kind of that was a curveball there. So what? No, but uh, TRL uh, total request live. Uh, yeah, you yeah, only yeah. win it so many times, man, because people oh, want to see right. some new videos. That's right. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was at The New York Times. I was writing about food and I sort of wound up on the fine dining beat. I sort of wound up covering 11 Madison Park. Uh, in New York City in their ascent. My first front page of the paper story was actually not the food section of the whole paper. Wow. It was about 11 Madison Park. And then. You know, I, I, I did a story for T Magazine that's part of the New York Times about um, about Rene Redzepi traveling through Mexico because it turned out he was obsessed with Mexico. And um, what happened is he he sent me this. Well, I got like a little bloop bloop on my email and it <laughs> was you have a reservation at Noma. I had a reservation suddenly out of nowhere that I had not requested <laughs> at the best restaurant in the world. <laughs> Except few, few, few problems here. First of all, it was in Denmark. <laughs> the other thing was three days from that. <laughs> like this was Tuesday and the reservation was like lunch on Friday. <laughs> and I, I'm not kidding. And I was like, um, so I was like texted Renee Redzepi and I said, Hey, hey, dude, I think, you know, y'all, you made a mistake or something because like I, maybe you accidentally put my number in there. But like I have a, I have a reservation at Noma. And he said, uh, take it or leave it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is Tony Robbins. Yeah, this yeah, is the, yeah, this right is the walk down. on the coals, man. <laughs> this is a test to see if I have the guts. Right. So, you know, I went on uh orbits or something and i got it it turned out norwegian <laughs> air had a lot of cheap flights i just yeah. booked a flight without asking anybody uh probably should have cleared it with some people but i, I just booked the <laughs> flight and um i win and I, and then i ended up writing other stories because it turned out renee reds up he had all these deeper things he wanted to talk about with noma he was about to close it basically close mm -hmm. the best restaurant in the world move it to a new location move the whole staff to mexico for months to do this pop-up uh, all sorts of risky things that could have essentially bankrupt the restaurant or just sort of thrown it out of the relevant column. Um, so I wrote about that for the times. And along the way, I just, I just thought, you know what? This, this is a book. This is like the greatest chef in the world. This is like Dylan goes electric. You know, yeah. I like, mm -hmm. like a moment where a creative force puts everything at risk. That's well, we talked about this with chef Ed Lee, that yeah. chefs became the new rock stars. And you were you were following him in the way someone might follow a rock star on tour. But instead of performances, he was going to different cities around Mexico looking for inspiration for this pop up. He was going to spaces in Copenhagen, figuring out the new iteration of Noma that would change everything. And um, 
that sounds exhausting. I mean, it, it, it was yeah. fascinating, but his life and his drive sounds exhausting and somewhat at odds at times with being a chef where, of course, you're looking for the next newest thing. But also once you find it, in theory, you sit there for quite some time and make that thing over and over. And and that seemed to be a conflict for like be, becoming and staying great. He doesn't like to stay put. Many restaurants have like their signature dish that everybody goes there for. Uh, both 11 Madison Park during the last decade and, and Noma defied that dictum. They wanted they never wanted to stay put. They never wanted to have a signature dish. In fact, it was like following the Grateful Dead. Any night of the Grateful yeah. Dead could be different. You never know. If they're, oh, suddenly they're playing Box of Rain. Holy cow. You know, oh, here comes China Cat Sunflower. Like with Noma, you just you, you, you know, it would it would constantly morph. And Renee gets bored very quickly. So. Yeah, I was in the middle of a divorce. I was down. I would go on these long walks just full of kind of drift and despair. And and <laughs> kind of I just decided to join the circus, basically. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I quit my job at the Times. So stupid from a professional standpoint. But <laughs> I I just really wanted to write this book. I, I, I You know, it's probably no secret to anybody who reads me that I'm obsessed with Tom Wolfe and the new journalists of the 60s and 70s. And, you know, they would embed, those those cats would embed with Muhammad Ali or Phil Spector or Ken Kesey for months at a time and then write like the definitive kind of profile biography of that person. And I wanted to do that. Not, not write like a 500-page biography because, as you saw, Hungary is quite short. I wanted to write like a, a new journalism-style portrait of this right. cultural figure who otherwise would be ignored. Like, like Noma Mexico would happen and go away and no one would um, chronicle it, right? And then right. also Noma Australia. I went to Sydney for the book. Mm -hmm. I went to upper part of Norway in the middle of February for the book, which I wouldn't recommend. Um, and... Uh, and there but were other things too. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating look at high-end food and chefs. Yeah. And for people who are interested, I mean, I've had a lot of top chef folks and, and food people mm. on this podcast because I'm just fascinated by the world and, and the process and really getting inside of it was I and mean, I really recommend the book to people who are cool. interested in that. Thanks, um, Sarah. Um it's 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 good. And and Redzepi is a really interesting focus for it because he is sort of cult-like and and iconic and um very specific kind of person. But also I yeah. love all the other chefs around him that are very different from him and create this very clear visual of like all the all the different people that are part of this world that that yeah. make it happen. Um you yeah, Dave Chang, Enrique yeah. Olvera, Danny Bowen, Kylie Kwong, you know, they all appear, you know, he, it's also in a weird way, kind of, it's like if you, you were at Altamont and you saw the end of the 60s, as people say, like this, or, you know, this is kind of looking Studio back. Studio 54 of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like the end. I mean, with the pandemic, that kind of put an end to a lot of this fine dining scene in certain ways, or certainly sent it into uh, a, a kind of confusion and bewilderment for a while so what i captured i think or attempted to in the book is is the feeling of a decade that a, an artistic pursuit that no longer exists really yeah um in fact renee um i was just in japan with renee again and and he's working on a pop-up in uh, kyoto that will happen Ooh. next spring yeah it's pretty cool oh uh, i uh i might be in japan next spring uh because I'm i know likely a guy to be in, i'm likely to be in <laughs> bali and i'm trying cool. to figure out where to attach uh if i'm if i end up in bali so uh i'm gonna keep that in mind please do we can finally make one of these shows uh <laughs> maybe maybe we could both go we could break, get a group it'd be really fun that would I be mean, awesome it's yeah. pretty extraordinary yeah so he's he's still moving you know he's still moving forward it's yeah he does the time he's He's not getting tired somehow. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Ice. Ice. Okay. So Old English used to be I-S. The modern spelling starts to appear around the 15th century. Some variations uh, and usages pop up later. So on ice, as in kept out of the way until wanted, is from around 1890. Thin ice in the figurative sense from 1884 around the 1580s to break the ice, i.e. to make the first opening to an attempt or conversation. Uh, and diamonds, slang for diamonds being ice, came around 1906. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. 
The word of the week is Tatterdemalion, circa 1600. Ragged child or person dressed in old clothes. Ragged or disreputable in appearance, being in a decayed state or condition. The exact origin of Tatterdemalion is uncertain, but probably connected to either the noun tatter, a torn scrap or shred, or the adjective tattered, ragged or wearing ragged clothes, plus a sort of fanciful, fantastical ending of Demalion. So Tatterdemalion. And it's listed as similar to ragamuffin, which is another incredible word that I do not use enough. Uh, from the mid 14th century, demon. And the late 14th century, a ragged lout from Middle English, ragged, plus another what could just be a fanciful ending of muffin. Or the second element might be Middle Dutch, muffy, which means mitten. Ugh, tatterdemalion and ragamuffin. Shout out, by the way, Twitter user John E. Zates. He's working on a book, and it's his second one borrowing a few character names from the folks in the Levitard show universe. So he wrote, Halfway through writing the second book in the series, I've added a few character names from the Levitard show Orbit. To carry on the tradition from the first book, Chris Whittingham, David Sampson, Chris Cody, Juju Gotti, Greg Cody, Katie Nolan, and Sarah Spain and Mina Kimes return. And Stu Gotts as Sarah Spain's Tatterdemalion assistant. Just incredible use of the word and so accurate. In fact, in a sentence, if you look up Tatterdemalion in the dictionary, you get a picture of Stu Gotts. Now let's get back to the interview. Let's get to the Esquire Best New Restaurants list, because as you said, you no longer do this on your own, which at least staves off certain death a few years longer. But it is still uh, a, quite a pursuit to try to narrow down 40th edition. So 40 uh, new establishments across the country that ended up in this. So tell us how the process works, because obviously you hear about places that should be considered. Maybe you get invited by certain places that believe that they're up to that par, but just going there a couple times, I assume you do. You have to, you, you're not just going to be like, okay, yes, they're in right. There's got to be a lot of places that you go that don't make the cut and places yeah. that you're not sure. So tell us how that process works. Well, the, the way that best new restaurants for Esquire is manageable for all of us, not just me now, is we do have a quartet of people. We have Omar Mamoun, who's in the Bay Area, Kevin Sintemong, who's my, my editor at Esquire, and also the brilliant Joshua David Stein, who's one of the great food writers, just a brilliant mind. So we, we do it together. We stake out different territories of the country. Um, I basically did New York, the Hudson Valley, Southern California, and the Carolinas. Um, and it's quite manageable if I just do that, right? The only real road trip for me was the Carolinas. It happened right during Hurricane Ian, so oh, that was crazy. I was basically racing to get to restaurants before they closed, <laughs> literally. Um, and um, my parents live in uh, Laguna Beach, and uh, so going to L.A. and San Diego is not hard for me. I tend to be there for much of the summer. So we find ways to make it more manageable. I mean, what we're looking for... It's I, I talked to you about this with Edward Lee. It's um, first for me, it's the three C's. OK, when I look at a restaurant, I'm looking for this balance of creativity, comfort and cool. I'm looking for a restaurant where I feel all of those things. Estella in New York City is a perfect example. Prune in New York City, which doesn't totally exist right now, but maybe it'll come back, is an example of that. Um it's not just that it's good. It's not just good food. It's like, it's the place you want to be. They're pushing the narrative forward somehow, but it's not so weird that it's just like, you know, you're eating Doing helium balloons. And stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and hey, and, hey uh, let's not take any shots at any well-known Chicago restaurants where you do. Uh, oh, yeah. So, no, I, I mean, if you're the best, <laughs> you know, a thing about molecular gastronomy is if you're Grant Atkins or you're Wiley yeah. Frank, it's fantastic. It's it's never the people at the top of the game who are the problem. It's it's when and like a lot of people try to copy it to me. I right. mean, I'm it's not the against hipster any balloon eaters. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm not against country music, but I'd rather listen to Johnny Cash and Lyle Lovett and Emily Lou Harris and Willie Nelson right. and Loretta Lynn than yeah. other certain people. So like, you know, it, it's um. so and then the other thing is like, is there a story being told? Is there some kind of narrative here? Is their point of view very strong? It's not just, hey, we got wood fired pizza and burrata, whatever. What what town doesn't at this point? Like, mm -hmm. show me something new. Um, so. To give you an example, I mean, I, I played a, 
I play a big role in in and like how we rank them and how we select them. Um, it's a it's a conversation. Joshua David Stein and I seem to disagree on a lot, which is actually really fun because he's an intellectual powerhouse. And we sort of go back and forth. Um, you know, I picked this place, Cafe Mutton up in Hudson, New York, uh, that I went to before it started getting hyped and I absolutely loved it. And it's, you know, it's an unusual restaurant. It's only open one day a week for dinner and the rest of the time. Uh, it It is. Um, just really breakfast and lunch and it's on this funky kind of out of the way corner of Hudson um, and they serve scrapple and head cheese and like a lot of gnarly stuff that you probably wouldn't like Sarah mm -hmm. from what yeah. I remember like um, yeah. it but it has a very distinct point of view um, um, the bathroom for instance has has uh, it, it, it everything has the imagery they use everything is is suggesting a, a strong point of view so but another member of our crew um uh, didn't didn't necessarily have a great experience. It was just after the uh, place had been named uh, one of the best restaurants in the country by the New York Times and Bon Appetit, Bon Appetit the same week. So there was like a line down the block. Right. And, you know, it's a very small place. It's almost like a, a little family owned spot and they couldn't really handle it. So yeah. um, uh, our number two restaurant is Yangban Society. It's in Los Angeles. Um, it's a it's a difficult restaurant to describe in a way because People say it was a Korean restaurant. It's not really that simple. Um, John Hong and Katiana Hong, who are a married couple and are, are chefs of the year. Um, John grew up in the Chicago area, actually, in a Korean-American family. He's sort of second generation. Katiana was adopted uh, by uh, a, a, I, her father was Jewish-American. Her mother was Irish-Catholic. And so the food they're doing that John and I, John and Katiana are doing at Yangban Society is like Korean, but there's also like basically kind of their version of latkes and schmears and like <laughs> and um and also sort of references to American junk food and almost like TGIFs. Like it's brilliant. <laughs> and and you hear this, Sarah, and you might say, I don't know. That's it's does that work? Right. I brought a big group of people there. Um, I'm going to totally name drop here like I haven't been already. Yeah, but right. I, I, I know I'm shame. Why stop now? Yeah, why stop? <laughs> can't, don't stop me now. I went with uh, Chris Storer, created the bear. I'm yeah. saying the bar because it's a Chicago reference. And we brought a big group. We ordered everything. We had a blast. It was like these gnarly, crunchy chicken wings and um, these beautiful heaps of acorn noodles, these mm. potato cakes or potato bread with the schmear, like a kind of smoked trout thing. And they have even a, in Japan, they call the konbini. It's like a convenience store that they actually built a little convenience store in the restaurant in the back. So you can go in the back of the restaurant and get like sodas or even some cocktails or little snacks and stuff. Cool. And it's really, it's really a reflection of a, you know, an immigrant experience of a Korean American, ex Korean American experience through two different lenses, John's and Katiana's. Yeah. It's telling this Los Angeles story, this, this uh, American story. It's just so food is, a, is rad. Food is yeah. rad. Well, and it sounds like it's a vibe, which is, but part it's of more it than it's a vibe. Yeah. It's yeah. like they're telling a story. So they, like that's well, what so I want to ask about what you just said, though, because yeah. I, I think it'd be hard to separate the experience from maybe who you share it with the mood you're in how full are you are you feeling well are you in a good yeah, mood what are your sure. personal tastes right yeah. what if you're really into something and they happen to serve it or you really hate something and that's their specialty how do you sort of because food is so subjective how do you sort of make sure that you're not taking into account that you're having a great time with chris Dorr and everybody and that's part of why you, you love don't it. you just you, you have to you have to surrender to the subjectivity of it. The one yeah. way we try to rent, uh, remedy the subjectivity of it is that whenever possible, we have the other guys from the team also go there, right? right? So Kevin Sintabong, my editor, also went to Yangban Society in Los Angeles on a different trip. Now, Kevin, he's written about this for Esquire beautifully. He grew up uh, in a Thai-American family, and he grew up in essentially a Thai restaurant in New Jersey that was his family's restaurant. And... I believe he said there was even like a convenience store attached to it or nearby. So Yangban Society really spoke to Kevin in terms of his own experience. Like there was an emotional connection there, a cultural connection. So it resonated with him differently than it would with right. 
Pasadena boy here, but it was like, you know, it, and, and I think it's possible that Omar Mamoun went too. everyone loved it is my point. And like yeah, there's magic in there in different ways for. Different yeah, so people. you're like, so OK, activity. Yeah. Yeah. If we if we're all feeling this now, there, there were, you know, there were we certainly all felt that about La Rock in uh, Manhattan, a new place in Rockefeller Center. Um, we all felt it about Nudie Branch, this really interesting, exciting kind of experimental East Village restaurant. We did dispute. I mean, I lost a few battles. I'm yeah. not going to I don't want to bum anybody out. There's a couple of places I loved. They didn't make the cut because Kevin and Joshua didn't like them, and, yeah. you know, and that's fair game. I mean, I used to run the list. I, you know, I was all powerful. Yeah. And um, in stepping away, I had to concede, you know, I had to. I had to kind of like surrender some power here and, and make it a conversation. And I've learned a lot through this. It's a good thing. Collaboration is a good thing. It enriches the list. Now we get all these different perspectives in the yeah. list and it, it's more diverse list. It's richer. It's it more reflects the stories being told. I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting. One thing you asked is like, if you don't like something, I like, I like pretty much anything. I like really funky foods and flavors and textures. I'm fine with it, but I don't like eggplant. <laughs> I don't know why. I just don't really see it as food. I just feel like I'm being served a shoe. Like okay. it's just like a hunk of well, leather. That's how I feel about it on a sandwich, like a cold yeah. slice of eggplant. Yeah. Sandwich. Now there's been some miso eggplant at like yeah. Katana that was like life changing. Yeah. There's, well, th this is what I want to do say. it right. Yeah. So the number three restaurant in our list is called Nang Juniors. It's a Filipino restaurant in Asheville, North Carolina. Very funky place. Only like 17 seats. And uh, Silver, um, who's the who's the chef there, our rising star of the year, they serve this eggplant that they, they actually have live coals, like this heap of hot coals. And the eggplants are just put on top of the coals, no grill, just on, burning, mm -hmm. basically scorched and blackened. Then they're served with this like really acidic, bright kind of Filipino relish that's smeared on top, creamy in the middle, black on the outside, hot soft I, I was like oh i like eggplant <laughs> yeah you have convinced you me if you could take <laughs> me over the border with eggplant with eggplant that's right wow. that's right You're, you uh, got skills <laughs> the way you just described that reminded me of um of heartwood just because everything and oh. heartwood comes up in your book and if people haven't been there in tulum i had heard about it a bunch and i finally went and i was like well next time i go i'm gonna make a reservation for every night i'm there because that's how much i loved it so and good. everything Arca is next like to it is good too yeah i know like there's something and Sarah, and fired and oh it's so good the hot, the fire thing you know it's like the francis moment thing I, I wrote about francis moment actually at one point for esquire i'm obsessed with that live fire cooking as yeah. are many many chefs around the country and I just, man, it's like we all know from backyard barbecues with our families, you know, stuff just tastes better when it's right yeah. off the fire. Well, when you do it in this elevated way to the point where like there was a there was a beet dish that when I put posted pictures, people thought it was a giant hunk of meat. And they were surprised <laughs> I was eating it because it was like the most incredible beet dish. Um, I want to ask quickly when you were in charge of it all, um, what kind of bribes are we getting here? Uh, and, or, <laughs> and or what kind of backlash are we getting when someone, you know, serves you the meal of their lives and they think they've nailed it and then they don't end up on the list? What was it like being oh, all powerful? Wow, that's so interesting. Listen, I, I hate getting comps. I actually turn down free meals. I don't want free meals. I'd want to pay and uh, I don't want to be beholden to anyone. Do people sometimes send me a couple free dishes? They do. You know, like that's just part of the the music, that's just part of the culture of it, sort of the custom. Yeah. I, I, I quite honestly dislike it. I would prefer they don't. I don't want to overeat. I know exactly what I'm going to order. I'm going to order way too much. Yeah. My children, can, my <laughs> older children. Before you send me the free stuff. But they'll confirm. <laughs> Daddy orders too much. I'm yeah. already ordering what I want. There's actually, <laughs> you know, certain things I don't want to eat. So, But they, you know, it's fine. Um, I did have a very well-known chef email me. Uh, a few years ago i won't name the person it's kind of mean but like basically like i how dare you how could mm -hmm. you leave me off the list i was i just gave you such an incredible meal and i was like wow oh, that's pretty <laughs> cocky yeah. you know like not everybody gets a trophy here you know i mean <laughs> and uh i i i but in some ways, I admired that that the person just put their heart in their sleeve. You know, like we all have moments where like, damn it, I deserve something there. And I mean, you know, 
Yeah. Resentment is, is a human emotion. And, I, and, I, and there's I said, tons you know of ego in being a chef and in putting it out there and then feeling like you didn't measure up so that, you know, you understand it, even though maybe, maybe yeah. emailing you with anger is not the response you need. Well, what I what I responded with was that in this particular instance, um, I, I felt like it was an example of pick a lane, which is a theme I talk about a lot with restaurants. And what I said about Young Bond Society sort of contradicts this, but I do feel they picked a lane, which is to tell their own story. It's like a, right. a restaurant as memoir, as autobiography. Mm -hmm. But when I go to a restaurant and they're like, we have red sauce Italian, we have um, sort of Jewish Lower East Side classics, we have uh, diner classics, mm -hmm. we have Indian curries, and we have, you know, Korean. I will not have you disparage the Cheesecake Factory, sir. Oh, well, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, just no. Like the, when the they present like a thousand menu items. The weird thing is, with the Cheesecake Factory can deliver it. <laughs> I don't can. know how they do it. They I can. just went there, with and I don't know kid. how the waiters memorize it either. I don't know. Listen, I, I'm not here to slag on the Cheesecake Factory. I'm basically saying, if you can't do what the Cheesecake Factory does, <laughs> there we go. Forget it. And and, and in this guy's instance, I said. You know, you chose like seven lanes. You, you you showed me seven types of restaurants at the same time. And I don't necessarily want chicken tikka masala, you know, and clams casino on the same table. It's it's right. Things don't always go together. It's yeah. not that either one was cooked poorly. It's like I right. just seemed like you open up two restaurants or yeah, make a decision and do. save something for later. Yeah. The yeah. best is like when they almost like do one thing, you know, like and they just do it so well, which you see in Japan. Um, you know, like where somebody will just specialize in a certain approach to ramen and and yeah. spend decades perfecting it. There's something so beautiful about that. And, and you know, it's going to be good because that's yeah. all they do. You know, so um, I'm just really wary of places that that are like uh, trying to please everybody, you know, like a place I really loved this year was called it's called Cafe Spaghetti. It's in what a name. I mean, that's just it yeah. practically is a cheesecake factory. Name. I was going to say, I yeah. saw that on the list and I was like, wow, this must be good because yeah. they, they failed on the name. They really well, people people remember the name. But, the um, you know, the chef Sal, uh, he he's he's, uh, you know, a Brooklyn red sauce guy. This is what he grew up. He grew up with Italian-American cuisine. He's like a virtuoso with it. And that's what he delivers. And he delivered. You know, you could go around where I live, Westchester County. And then Long Island, New Jersey. I mean, there's there's thousands of great red sauce restaurants, but he's just there's so much soul and devotion to yeah. to the details, um, and they just make you feel so good. So it was like he's just, in a way, similar to Katiana and Zhang Hong. He's just owning who he is and telling a story with Cafe Spaghetti about who he is. Yeah. Um, and what the neighborhood's about and what New York history is about, what Italian American history is about. And you, when you see it, when you feel that, you know, it's real. You yeah. Know, it's like the authenticity comes through in restaurants like that, yeah. in spaces like that. It's the thing everybody does, but nobody expects a special Thanksgiving edition of the Spanish Inquisition. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. We are running this episode the week of Thanksgiving, which is yeah. America's most famous food day, though often not the best. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite <laughs> things, I hope Twitter still exists by the time Thanksgiving <laughs> rolls around, because seeing the absolute shit terrible plates that people post and think is representative <laughs> of good food everything on the plates like beige uh that's one of my favorite things um i want to do a thanksgiving speed round so per your expert opinion as an eater and a food writer the most common mistake that people make when cooking for thanksgiving is cooking for thanksgiving <laughs> no you i mean advise takeout <laughs> no, I advise going to a restaurant. I wrote an essay about this for Esquire. I'm going to save really? your life. Yes, I know. But and and no, listen, listen, it's about cooking no, with your no, family no. in the kitchen all day and you know family what? recipes. And... Do you want to argue with your family or do you want to get along with your family? Well, that's a you am, problem. My I family am... <laughs> doesn't argue on Thanksgiving. My family loves each other on Thanksgiving and we all cook together. And... Uh, 
you're probably right there. But like, <laughs> I am a patriot. I want everyone to know I'm, I love America, but uh, I, I really do. But I don't love the tension of Thanksgiving. And like, he, OK, so here's the thing. My parents were visiting one year a decade ago or something and i was just getting hit by a truck with deadlines and uh you know parenting duties and stuff and i and, and impulsively again the impulse control i just made a reservation at keen's which is a fantastic old shop house in new york city right and it was it was expensive <laughs> i was like oh shit what did i do but uh i brought my my whole family and my parents to keen's now they had the classic you know turkey and stuffing and all the the pies and the great vegetable sides and stuff um expertly done beautiful old room the room has been around since like literally teddy roosevelt used to eat yeah. at this place okay they got old pipes on the ceiling that that like i don't know washington george washington smoked or something and 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 <laughs> and, and uh and you know we walked in I think everybody was a little like dad daddy's mean he doesn't want to do thanksgiving at home <laughs> and by the end of the evening everyone was so happy because we're like oh yeah. we don't have to do dishes yeah. um that part i'll give you because we used we to do, do thanksgiving dishes. a couple every once in a while for a couple of years when i lived in california and my family wanted an excuse to come there we would do thanksgiving in palm springs and it was oh, nice, nice to go out and we didn't have to clean and cook but it just felt like any other meal out and Thanksgiving is special because of, you know, being in a house all day together and cooking. And um, yeah. all right. So let's suspend disbelief on your terrible take <laughs> that people should go out. And uh, <laughs> let's do a couple more speed round. The best side dish for Thanksgiving. Creamed onions. Ooh, I yep. love onions and I've never done yeah. creamed onion. I always do it's creamed very, corn. My, 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 my mother, you know, bless her Calvinist heart. Like she <laughs> suffers through this when, when we have Thanksgiving in California at home, uh, you get the little pearl onions and I think she has to peel every single one. Yeah. And you basically kind of simmer them in butter and cream. Okay. I mean, and maybe there's some herbs in there too, All but it's basically just, it's like very like rustic French, just, okay. I mean, that's my, I might add that like, to the list. I might, uh, it's I have one time but... in my life in the twenties eating just a bowl of grilled onions. Uh, that well, was like really, it's really a bowl thing of I used to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this sounds like an upgraded version of the bowl of grilled onions. I used to eat in my twenties. When, um, when, when the cream melds with the stuffing, that is a sweet spot. I That's all I'm going to say. Onion too. <laughs> yeah. uh, the most overrated side dish. Um, I don't really like, that like candied things so no. i i don't i don't like Me like neither. uh marshmallows it's no. not like i'm not against sweet potatoes i, I love i like a, particularly like the japanese sweet potatoes they're so beautiful but i don't really like marshmallows on stuff i like them savory i like all of my side dishes yeah. savory and then i want it to be sweet when it's like dessert time yeah. Um, yeah, same, same with me. Uh, the unexpected, you kind of answered this with the, with the creamed onions, but let's see if you've got another, the unexpected side dish that every table should have. Um, you know, I'll tell you, I, I, I do like, oh my God, I'm going to sound very Dr. Oz now. I, I mean, I'm a oh, food no. writer. I can get it. I can get away with it. Right. I'm yeah, a food yeah, writer. Yeah. Crudite. I, I think there's okay. something to be said for like celery sticks. Like if they're really well done, um, some beautiful olives, like mm -hmm. some really good Italian olives. And, um, but I think you start with that, right? I don't think yeah. you have that on the table because it's going to get left behind. But if you start with yeah. it so that like, uh, depending on, so that's the final question of the speed round is what is the optimal time for Thanksgiving dinner for the dinner? If you have it at home. Yeah. Because there are people there. No, no, no. What time of day? <laughs> oh. Some people have it at noon. <laughs> Some yeah. people have it at six. Like, I'm is a it a lunch? PM. Is it a dinner? I'm a 3 is it a... p.m. guy. I'm totally messing up your speed run. You're like, never, ever have him <laughs> back again. I, I also do like deviled eggs, I must say. I like deviled okay. eggs in every meal. But um, <laughs> I think, like, you know, you get started around three in the afternoon. So there's plenty of time for the plane to land on the runway yes. safely. What's ideal is if you and can to have eat that a lot, second wind for a little Yeah. Mm -hmm. And second, maybe a little more pot, like go for yep. a walk. It's really good mm -hmm. to eat a lot that go for a family walk. I actually think the family walk, well, this is a Southern California boy, but like, you know, we can do that. I mean, some places is very cold, right. but yeah. like Chicago, maybe not always, but um, it's just so nice. Eat a lot, go for a long walk, come back, eat more.
<laughs> yeah, I agree. I completely agree because I think it can't be too early. You need to have like a like a satisfying but pretty light breakfast brunch kind of thing to tide you over. Then you do the meal at three. You lay around, either go for a walk or watch football or play board games or do whatever you do with your family. And then that way, you know, around like seven or eight, you can go back and have some more of whatever your favorite thing was. Yeah. You know, then next day you could do the uh, the turkey sandwiches and such. Um, yeah. All right. I'm hungry and excited for Thanksgiving, cool. which will definitely be done at home like a real <laughs> true American. Um, <laughs> like a patriot. <laughs> like a real patriot. Um Jeff, this was so fun. Thanks so much oh, for yeah, coming it was really on. Fun. Thanks for I'm having excited me. for everybody to see Esquire's best new restaurants list. I'm excited for everyone to go buy and read Hungry. Uh, it will make wow. you hungry, though. And uh, and it was uh, it was great to talk to you. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. That's what she said. <laughs> oh yeah, one more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. Tell you what to read, watch, listen to. Sometimes tell you a great story. Obviously. This week, go check out Esquire's Best New Restaurants in America list. Check out Jeff's work there and read Hungry, Jeff's book. If you've got a food lover, a top chef or iron chef watcher, a lover of adventure and travel, I really can't recommend it enough. Fascinating, smart, clever, such a quick, good read. Um, I hope you guys all have a great Thanksgiving. Please post those struggle plates. I need to see every damn color of beige that your family thinks looks good. Hashtag struggle plates. Look them up. I love it. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions, questions, or more. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>